0: Friends, welcome. It is I, Mikey Carl, with my co-host today, Marcus Teague, and none other than iconoclast, uh, singer, songwriter, actor, Ben Lee. Hi, Ben. How are you? Doing good, mate. How are you? Feeling good, feeling great. How are you? Good outcast to start. Today's show, my friends, we've got... uh, Pretty hot segments. First one we're going to talk about is TikTok and the good, the bad and the refusing to put up anyone ugly. Secondly, uh, Marcus, you're going to take the lead on?
1: Band t-shirts and
0: uh, where and when you should be allowed to wear them, especially if you're a fan of that band. And finally, we're going to get right into Ben Lee's career, everything you've done up until this point. We're going to actually, this this podcast is actually going to take uh, 42 years. So we're going to go through minute by minute of your life. Ben, is that cool with you?
2: yeah i haven't quite planned the child care but we should be okay
0: that's all right the way gladys is are uh, dealing with covid in your stage probably going to be in no unless let's not go. It's too dark let's too dark let's not go there all right podcast theme song here it is boom all right friends today as as we said we're going to kick it off with a pretty heavy subject that being uh tiktok now I read an article for The Age two days ago about Isolate and how they've hooked up with TikTok, who are giving incredible um, coverage and an amazing platform for artists. The difference between the Instagram, where previously Isolate was running through Instagram, is accessibility. Anyone anyone can access uh, TikTok. It's much easier than switching between Instagram accounts and also streams on a TikTok account to overall uh, streams for charts and for royalties. So that's really good for artists. Conversely, on Monday night, Four Corners – pretty much did an expose about just how bad TikTok is behind the scenes and how insidious, and I certainly found it more insidious than I expected. There was a lot of basically young users being encouraged to watch what they eat. Uh, I think 7 billion views of This Is What I Ate Today, the hashtag, and a lot of facial technology, sort of facial recognition um, mirroring people's uh, moods. And also, an email went around to all staff from uh, the uh, parent company, ByteSpace, saying we don't want any users with who have wrinkles, who are ugly, or who are obese. Since then, of course, they are striving to be better. I put that in very heavy uh, quotations. Their practices are pretty despicable, and we are caught here now in a bit of a conundrum. In that we have this thing TikTok, which is is you know pushing artists all over the world, not just in Australia and New Zealand, and that's great. But conversely, as I said, they're doing some pretty awful things online and the way they communicate with the public as well, it's very much like uh, faceless multinational slash the Chinese Communist Party, which is, yeah, they sort of seem to sort of, you know, yeah, shout out to Chinese Communist Party who are now tracking me. Great. I'm going to ask you straight up, Ben, because you're very outspoken on lots of things, and I'm sure you have thoughts on this matter. Where do you sort of, how do you view TikTok and, and the reason you, I don't believe you're on TikTok.
2: No, I, I joined TikTok two weeks ago. Um, oh, as here you go, to do right off the press. Kid. Yeah. Um, I find this conversation incredibly naive and almost insulting on the part of the media because there seems to be this shock that a tech platform or an app Has an ulterior motive besides bringing you joy and pleasure in your life, and I just think capitalism is an absolute nest of vipers, and Mm -hmm. all of these companies are inherently evil and will destroy society and the earth given the chance. Like it's like a it's a proven entity that basically like capitalism is self-destructing in terms of our relationship to, like, having a sustainable existence on this planet. So I just think it's like the idea of nitpicking over one company over another. Like, we are so much further down the road of self-destruction than that admits.
0: With that, though, I mean, would you support, so say, that India pulled TikTok in June 2020 and just got rid of TikTok altogether. They banned it under the reason of national security and sort of the threats to national security. Do you think Australia should, should ban TikTok or are you saying... You know, because of capitalism, well, well, where do we stop? You know, ban TikTok, ban a whole bunch of others.
2: Well, again, I mean, I think it's, I think that's that's an extremely like Western centric and nationalist way of viewing corporations. Like, I think Facebook is an inherently evil company, but because its political agenda jives with sort of Western democracy, we give them a pass basically. Um, and you have another evil company set up in China. Um, and we don't like their politics, so we're going to ban them. But I sort of see it all as a little bit besides the point, basically.
0: How, how do we move forward from here then?
2: Rome is burning. We be kind to each other. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: think the thing that I took from the um, the Four Corners expose, I totally agree with you, Ben, in that these these places, are they're private companies set up to make money. So they they don't really give a shit sort of the uh, the cost, I suppose, at the end of the day, the, the human cost. But... Like, for example, to quote um, one of the TikTokers that were featured in the article, Rory Eliza, who has 1.5 million followers. She says at the start of the episode, I think it's every young kid's dream to be successful online. It's so fun to go to the app and express your real self. We're not really people anymore. We're a brand. And then not long after, her dad comes in and says, it's hard not to be jealous sometimes. She can make more money in a few minutes than we can in a few days. And which obviously raises the question of the duty of care. In terms of the how, how uh, allowing these uh, allowing something like TikTok to actually mold people's brains and mold your child's brain and sort of I guess it's almost to to draw a parallel to kind of like previous music industry history is that the child star uh, you know pushing them out before their you know their brains fully formed, that sort of thing. And now it's inviting that into your home and into the kids' home. Am I right in thinking that it's your kids that kind of convinced you to get on TikTok?
2: Yeah, but I just think it's like that's more just about parenting and the atmosphere within a family. It's like blaming a school system. You know, kids have always gone out and found ways to be self-destructive. And what really ultimately is pretty much proven to be where self-esteem originates is actually in the family home. And I think Mm. there's a lot of like, yes, there are a lot of challenges with technology, but I don't know. I've always had the feeling like when my kid got into a video game or a TV show, I joined them. I started playing the video game with them. I started watching the TV show with them. Because if you have a dialogue and you have connection, you build in a way of talking through the issues. Like it's pretty interesting, you know, between Socrates and Plato, um, Socrates never wanted anything written down. And he was, um, he believed that writing down things devalued them and basically rotted the brain. And it's only mm-hmm. because Plato was the next generation, he was like, Oh man, these old guys just don't understand. We got to get this down in writing for future generations. Right. <laughs> so this has been an ongoing thing of like, um, pet one generation criticizing the next generation's technology and the choices that they use for communication. And I just think instead of like criticizing, it's like, get in there and learn it and be part of it and help create the culture that you want to create and you want your family to have.
0: Ben, you've got enough fans, uh, you know, to, if you had a Patreon or you know, if you had a TikTok account, they'd certainly be super into what you're doing. I just had a look at your Instagram today, answering some questions about, you know, mainstream culture and being on pop music, underground culture, et cetera. Um, is there, what, what reason do you have for not embracing TikTok yourself as a musician and also the Patreon thing. I'm, I'm super curious as to um, why you perhaps haven't got into that. What are your reasons?
2: I don't like making things um, that can't be for everybody. Um, I like, I'm sort of philosophically opposed to it. Like I don't want patrons. Patrons to me, they become the boss. And I've always thought artists should be the boss. The audience should follow you know, that's the kind of artists I like. So personally, I don't like the idea of making a piece of work that only goes to a limited group of people and is like... a. Even though some of my work aesthetically is going to rule out being for everyone, but I still invite everybody to the table. And so I, I don't like those types of exclusive things. Um, TikTok, I, I am enjoying it. I like it. Um, I like all of them. I mean, I've I enjoy... Facebook ended up becoming just like a nightmare, like being invited to like a family friend's like 50th anniversary party. (laughs) But in all the other social media, I think it's all like, I just don't think tools are that. It's almost like not worth accrediting them with too much personality or, you know, or, or qualities. It's really about how you use them. And I've always thought- all these social media platforms can be used to um, spread joy, to share ideas, to be a supportive presence in the lives of whoever you connect with over them. And I've had so many like collaborations with artists they would have never met except for we met on social media. Because I had a career that started in the 90s, long before social media. So I remember the difference and I remember how much more isolated artists were. Um, and you can really now artists connect with each other all the time and make things. And I, I just find that I just generally find it positive. Well, that's
1: true. Particularly TikTok is is not just it's not just being a platform for people to connect with and collaborate with, like you say. But it's, in some instances, it's fundamentally changing the output that musicians do in terms of shorter songs. It needs to match to a dance. Uh, like it becomes a different. I guess, platform beyond the core aspect of writing a song, particularly like a two-and-a-half-minute pop song or a three-and-a-half-minute pop song, you know, the standard format of what we're accustomed to over the last 50, 60 years. So when the output starts being completely different from, I guess, music, you know, songs as we kind of have accepted it over the last few decades, does that Yeah, but that's
2: that's nothing it- new. That that goes back to like 12-inch vinyl that had 45 mm. minutes aside or 22 minutes or whatever it was. Um, artists having to like break up symphonies. Um, the radio wouldn't generally play songs more than four minutes. That's an incredible compromise from the general mm. abstract state of music. Like, look, there are going to always be these types of uh, trends, and you decide which ones you want to go with and which ones you want to battle against. And that's basically what forms your character. Um, I'm not looking for like to find a platform that ultimately I feel totally aligned with, because I just don't think that exists. You can choose how much you want to play the game or how little you want to play it, but that's up to every artist and that's what makes them unique.
1: Your, your, uh, your as a musician in the 25 words or less version of describing Ben Lee in, a, in an article, but you've also, you've done comedy. You have been an ambassador for essential oils. You, uh, have done TED talks. You, you know, you've you've done so many different things, and there's so many different kinds of records that it almost you're almost become more of a broadcaster in a in a larger sense. And it made me wonder if does it just mean that like these different channels of you communicating with an audience or the public that's just exciting in 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 itself. Like it doesn't have to be, oh, you know. Referencing back to being a songwriter and therefore this is what fits this model. It's simply broadcasting to an audience what's in your head.
2: Yeah, that's true. And I think, like, primarily I'm a nutcase. And however <laughs> that chooses to express itself at various points of the day or the year, or the, that's all fine. You know, I, I don't... Mm. Me and my wife are getting ready to direct a movie together. Um, which is something neither of us have ever done. But I've, you know, I come from punk rock. It's like, why not? Let's do this. <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, I just take it back to sort of the isolate thing as well. So isolate every Wednesday night now. They've got new. Isolade Homegrown Festival, uh, shown through TikTok and also their own platform, the Isolade website, where two um, burgeoning artists this week, Ulla and Benjamin Trelato, uh, play with the more established artists. You've played Isolade, and tell us about the, that experience for you and, and just generally streaming online, especially when you're a person who was living in America, got fucked off with America from what I can tell, obviously living under Trump, and then came over here so you could do some touring, and now you're in Sydney and there ain't much touring going on for a little while. Tell me about, yeah, that whole experience.
2: You know, that first year of lockdown we spent in LA, twenty twenty, um, those little things like um isolate and stuff, they were real moments of clarity and connection and I, I was really grateful for them. Um, yeah, I spent the first six months of the year basically touring here. So that was really good. And now I'm in the stage of like doing album cover and videos and all that for my new record. So um it, it it hasn't really interrupted my touring plans. It will more so, I think, when we as we move towards album release and all that kind of thing. Obviously, touring I don't think is going to be part of it in Australia.
0: Yeah, we've all got to sort of just somehow retain resilience and patience in a, in a situation where we've been asked to be way too resilient and or patient. Uh, let's make some predictions where TikTok will be in Australia. I know I'm on the TikTok, I sound like I'm on TikTok's cock, uh, where TikTok will be in Australia in one year. I think um, some of the rug will be pulled from underneath it and there'll be sort of some stricter guidelines around it. That might be very idealistic of me, uh, but that's my prediction. Marcus? I don't think
1: so because guidelines for those sort of things tend to come five years, ten years after the the fact. It's not like the federal government moves that fast. I think it will play out just the way most apps play out where, you know, something new will come along or creators move on to something else, essentially. Like, um, we're not going to be living with it day in, day out.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's like, I think the death knell of a dominant platform is always because some better competition comes along that solves the problem better. So right now, I think the reason TikTok is really connected is because it's a balance, it, it has the YouTube sense of like being fed actually sort of like entertaining professional content not just photos of friends and family and the sort of social media aspect to it so you know i think other things will come along also that'll address those needs as they evolve in you know what people want
0: Are you tempted at all to to join TikTok so you can get your streams up and to get, you know, in a time where... No, I'm on
2: TikTok. I'm on TikTok. Yeah, I'm having a blast. I'm connecting with what I'm seeing is that there's a huge amount of people that are only on TikTok. One of the problems that that platform solves for artists is that if I'm on just Facebook and Instagram, Twitter less so, but Twitter, you don't really share music. You just share um, your ideas. But you find yourself very much just preaching to the converted and the issue of how do you connect with new people, how do you get your content in front of fresh eyes and fresh ears is one that if you all have a long career, it's like you, it, that problem never goes away. Otherwise, you just end up to, to a sort of dwindling, <laughs> diminishing audience. So I like the fact that it's like a way of like getting in front of and reconnecting with and getting in front of new people constantly, which is... I think that that is a really good problem that they've figured out how to solve. Mm.
0: Isolate's Emily Alman said it's really strange. Some people think they're too cool for TikTok, which is so. She's having a bit of a battle with a lot of sort of you know Melbourne and Sydney artists who aren't part of TikTok yet.
2: Yeah, there seems to be not that many musicians on it in a way in Australia. I don't know what that's about. I mean, in some ways, I think <laughs> you know what it could be. I think there's a real system in the australian music industry of creating these very like manicured professional artistic careers Mm. and i actually don't think that really works on tiktok it's chaotic it's total chaos and i think that may be part of the reason why some people avoid it
0: it's less pressure too and i think maybe people who aren't don't realize that it's it's a less pressurized environment you put something up people dig it cool if they don't that's fine let's move on
2: yeah i mean that's the thing if you come from like diy or punk or whatever it's like those kind of things are so easy it's like yeah give it a crack and there's no you know fail fast fail cheap fail often type thing excellent listeners find hit
0: different on facebook like the page to get extra updates the next story we have mark is going to talk all about band t-shirts indie band t-shirts when it's right or it's wrong to wear them we're gonna butt heads Segment two, Marcus.
1: Ben, I don't know if you, uh, if you know the writer Stephen Haydn. He's an uh, American kind of author, journalist, pop culture critic, all that sort of stuff. Anyway, he does this column on UpRocks where people write in questions. And one of them this week was, I'm really excited about the return of live music, but there's one thing about concert culture I don't really understand. Why is there a stigma against wearing a band T-shirt at a concert performed by that band? How did this taboo start, and do you agree with it? Jamie from Philadelphia. And the headline is, is it cool to wear a T-shirt of the band to the band's gig? So the band T-shirt to the same band's gig. Timeline of the T-shirt. First worn in the late 19th century as a military undergarment. And then in the 1930s, it was printed with US college logos. That was sort of the early days of the printed T-shirt. Supposedly, the first evidence of that sort of creeping into the mainstream is in, of all things, The Wizard of Oz, when there's some... I don't know what they're called, but they're like creatures that are helping out the uh, Scarecrow. And they're wearing Oz printed t-shirts in the 1939 movie. And there were some promo t-shirts that were that came off the back of that movie. Marlon Brando in a streetcar named Desire famously wore a tight whitey, which boos- whitey. boosted the popularity of t-shirts. And then 1956, Elvis Presley's record company produces a shirt to promote four of his singles. Beatles followed not long after that. Then the Monkees. And then it really hit the mainstream with a guy called Bill Graham, who was a big uh, concert promoter in the US. He ran stuff like the Fillmore West, Fillmore East. Uh, he, he produced a lot of psychedelic kind of era shows and made T-shirts for the likes of the Jefferson Airplane, Grateful Dead, those sort of things, and uh, used the T-shirts to kind of promote the shows. And then they, of course, started making money. Glenn A. Baker at the time for ACDC dc reckons that AC/DC had the first worldwide tour to make more money from merchandise than ticket sales. So it became, a, it became a, you know, a way for bands to make money aside from just selling tickets to the shows, which is still very true today. And then in the 80s, punk came along, a lot more homemade t-shirts or 70s, I should say, punk came along. And then the 80s, it became a bit more of a fashion item, especially in the UK, where it's sort of like, Rave and psychedelic bands like Ned's Atomic Dustbin put out more different T-shirts than songs. In the 90s, it became a bit of virtue signalling thing. You know, I'm into this band before you are. And then these days, it's sort of splintered into a few different things. Ben, you would know, obviously, kind of like you're. Uh, you know, you got to have T-shirts as part of your merch at the front of the at the front of the, the venue. That sort of thing. You take a bit more money home from that cart than you do selling records. So that's the the main one. But then, of course, it's become high fashion. Like Artists like Kanye West kind of dropping fashion lines, irrespective of an album cycle or anything like that. In, in Australia, client liaison putting out fashion aside from music. And then it's also become sort of chain store fodder for stuff like Kmart, where it's just you can walk in and buy an ACDC or Rolling Stones T-shirt off the shelf. Ten bucks, bad kerning. Don't have to really think about it. <laughs> Slightly off-kilter font. Ben, did you judge people for the T-shirts they wore when you kicked off your music career in the 90s? Especially, 90s were a time when, especially pre-internet, wearing a T-shirt of a band was a way of signaling to your tribe that I'm in this, let's meet.
2: Yeah, it still is, man. I still judge people.
0: <laughs>
1: Did you have a favorite T-shirt to, to, um, to, back back in the day?
2: Oh, yeah. I have a Guided by Voices T-shirt yeah, I good. love, but I'm always buying T-shirts. Mm. Um, I love T-shirts. It's uh, it's 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 something I believe in.
1: When you see someone in the crowd wearing a Ben Lee T-shirt, does it does that register in a, in any particular way?
2: Well, there's you know there's another layer to it because like um, T-shirts for solo artists mm. are not as cool as T-shirts for it's bands. The, it's, it's
1: true. It's got the guy's name on it, doesn't uh, it?
2: Because because otherwise you're just wearing a human's name on your chest, which is weird. You know what I mean? I always think a band T-shirt is much cooler.
1: What about wearing to to go back to Stephen's hypothesis? What about wearing a uh, band's t-shirt to a show of that band.
2: It depends, man. It's all look. The thing about cool is, it's all about the way it's pulled mm. off, right? Mm. So, cool moves in a circle. So something becomes so uncool that eventually it crosses over in that it's so wrong that it's right, and that's really cool. So, like for instance, uh, Jay Mascus from Dinosaur Jr. He, you know, there was a thing that he loves the Rolling Stones and, but instead of wearing like a vintage cool, he always has the crispest, newest Rolling Stones <laughs> tour shirt from their current tour. <laughs> and it's does. so cool because it's so wrong yeah. and it's so contrary. So, you know, it's all about the way in which, uh yeah, the way in which we do you it. You know
0: the story about the Aussie guy who designed the, the tongue for Rolling Stone, the tongue logo that really, so Australian. really, really took that. off. And he never got paid properly. And then in the end, Jagger's famously a bit of a tight ass. But in the end, they went, they just bought him a villa in France to say thank you for the tongue logo, which they just had no idea would be so popular as it still is. I wear my methyl ethyl t-shirt to to methyl ethyl shows. I'm wearing a Tame Impala t-shirt right now. I've worn that to a Tame show. I've got a Basement Jacks tour tour shirt arriving in the mail this week. Which is during lockdown, it's exciting to to buy stuff and wait for it to arrive in the mail. So, I I still feel confronted by wearing band t shirts. I'm not sure are you
1: what it is. Overthinking it. Maybe I am. There was a point where I was like, I'm done with this, and
0: I'm not sure why. <laughs> I I actually haven't investigated, like interrogated myself about it. What but, about? I was gonna say Ben. What about wearing your own t shirts? I'm a DJ, and I sometimes wear a Joey light bulb singlet that my girlfriend had made for me. Um, and I mean, you know, at first I'm like, should I like, fuck it? Why wouldn't
2: I? Yeah. Um, you can do it. Especially if it's like a band kind of thing. I think that's kind of cool. Especially if you like customize it a little Mm. bit, like guns and roses used to do, you know, there would always be like someone wearing, um. Yeah, like someone, uh, you know, wearing like a cut-up Guns N' Roses t-shirt in the band. So that's cool. But There's a way to do it. Mm. There's usually one guy in the Strokes wearing a Strokes t-shirt. <laughs> that's <true>. It's <laughs> cool if there's just one of them in a band, though. And I like I the fact that Julian Casablancas... You can't have more than one.
0: Julian Casablancas refuses to get photoed without, without the rest of the band. If it's a Strokes... He never, he's never like, yeah, just me. It's always with the whole band, which is respect. <laughs> also, I saw Dave Chappelle wearing his own Dave Chappelle Comedy Central face mask at the NBA playoffs the other day, which is very good. I think it
1: also has a lot to do with the the genre that you're that you're discussing, and I've and I've broken out some some big big ticket genres to to run through. Tell me, <laughs> tell me what you think. So, if you're a large pop act, we're talking about the sort of Taylor Swift pantheon. Uh, oh, this is answering to the question. Is it okay to wear a band's T-shirt to that band or an artist's T-shirt to that band? So, big ticket pop, yes. Because by simply showing up, you are already willing to be an extension of the brand. See also light up bracelets for Coldplay, that sort of thing.
0: (laughs) Gross. Keep going.
1: Dance music. No, you're too invested in the physicality of the experience and the unspoken fashion, i.e. sportswear, loose-fitting clothes, to allow being able to move to the music. Indie Rock on the fence. If you're being ironic, it's okay. Or if you're virtue signalling, for example, you've got a handmade T shirt or you've got like an artist adjacent T shirt. So for example, wearing the T shirt of the singer's band to that actual band's gig. So you'd be wearing like a Julian Castleblakers and the Voids t shirt to the Strokes gig. you're kind of saying, you know, you're, you're, you're commu- is that virtue signaling? <laughs> yeah you're communicating to other members there to say hey I was here first uh in met
2: yeah but i reckon all all fashion is that. i know all fashion is communication totally. so it's just like another way of like people using fashion to communicate their values 100%.
1: uh in metal compulsory you ha- you have to wear a band t-shirt you because and i think and also metal fans in my experience are Maybe the, the warmest community of, peop- mm. of people celebrating those things and really don't really give a shit what people think. Uh, whenever I've been to a metal festival, everyone is is uh, loud and proud about the T-shirts and the bands that they're into. Mm. Uh, hip-hop, only really if it's a drop of that particular artist's fashion line. Probably doesn't have the artist's name on it. And in folk music, you probably don't know what you're wearing that day and even if you did, you didn't give a shit. <laughs>
0: I want to know whether uh, you still have a precocious little cunt t shirt somewhere buried within your word. Oh, yeah,
2: I never got one of them. I wanted one of them. That was something that Modular made. Um, I never got one, but I I have it in my heart, you You know.
0: know. And quick uh, context for people Bernard Fanning uh, called Ben Lee a precocious little cunt. And then Ben owned this term in a very kind of jocular fashion, I would say. And then Modular (laughs) saw an opportunity to make some bank, apparently. So there we are. There we are. Uh, what's the last band T-shirt you wore, Ben?
2: Uh, I'm just looking seeing if I'm wearing one now. Um, and I think probably like I have a, a guided by voices T-shirt I love. And I also have a T-shirt um, from an artist named Shamir Ooh, who I love love Shamir. Um, from Philly. So yeah. So maybe one of those.
0: I think you need to be wearing a Georgia Mac T-shirt. Someone you've just called the Lady Gaga. I've got a Georgia there Mac T-shirt. You go.
2: How? I love my Georgia Mac T-shirt. It's the one that says, um, uh, I can... I can rely on my talent. I just choose not to.
0: <laughs> I like that. I saw her do the Milk Records uh, thing at Brunswick Ballroom two or two or three Thursdays ago. Oh, cool! It was un-effing real. Yeah. She's like, it was basically stand-up comedy with music as well. Uh, yeah, she's because uh, she came out dressed in the you know the um sort of the swimsuit onesie and said. I just know that what I'm doing right now is more embarrassing than anything any of you will ever do. <laughs> it was just amazing. Yeah. She's she a had a song. This is a new song. It's called Joe Rogan. It's about a guy I dated who listened to Joe Rogan. <laughs> just like, just she, That's a red flag. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was tremendous. Very good. All right. Uh, if there's something, friends, we should be covering on the show, hit us up. We're all on Twitter. I message the different Facebook page. We've got Ben Lee here. He's been a very giving guest, and we're about to sort of dive into his career. I'm going to ask you right now, Ben, tell us about this film that you and Ioni, uh, I'm saying your wife's name correct, correctly. Tell us about this film you guys are making, Your punk.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, I uh, you wrote know, I, I a musical with the author Tom Robbins called Beers for Beer. Mm. It's a children's psychedelic musical about alcohol, <laughs> and like um, Belinda Carlisle plays the beer fairy, and um, it's 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 really cool. Um, so we're going to make a movie version of it next year. Unreal. Whereabouts will that happen? I think we're going to do it in L.A. Just because all the actors—it's like uh, Paul F. Tompkins and John Cryer and. Uh, uh, busy Phillips and different people. Everyone's in LA, so it's kind of the easiest to get people to do you favors <laughs> if they don't have to travel.
0: Now, tell us a bit about Tom Robbins because I saw you post a picture with with him uh, not so long ago, and yeah, that that relationship.
2: Yeah, well, we you know we we first connected um, a decade ago, um, and we've sort of been working with this project on and off since then. And it's you know he's um, he's eighty nine at the moment, and I think for me. It's been a very big deal to have a sort of creative collaboration with someone, you know, that's like cross-generational, because I think there's a lot of wisdom you get in, you know, show business or art or whatever, uh, just by living and surviving and finding your voice and sticking with your voice. And Tom's been an amazing mentor and teacher in that way. And and also just a kindred spirit, you know.
0: I mean, he's up to his 90th year on this planet, you know, that is a wild wild thing to think about. And it's that classic thing. You don't stop playing because you get old. You get old because you stop playing. Tell us the first time you, you really thought that you'd found your voice or you'd found you had something to say. Like take it right back to Noise Edict, right back into the 90s. The first time you, you had a kernel of something where you executed it and went, you know what? This is fucking – people need to hear
2: this. I reckon it even goes further back than that. For me, I remember being in year two and there was auditions for a musical. I went to a Jewish school and the musical was called Uncle Moishi and His Mitzvah Men <laughs> and everyone had to get up – and sing uh, just happy birthday. It was their way of auditioning everybody. And I would never thought I could sing or not sing. Like it had never been something I'd thought about at all. And I got up and I just sang happy birthday. And I just saw the teacher like smiled and wrote my name on something. Um And I could see that literally just the tone of my voice, she liked it. And I liked the feeling of singing and I like the feeling of someone else enjoying that and that was like this key moment I guess where I just sort of realized that standing up
0: and singing could be meaningful Mm. you've got a smile and an energy that brings a whole room straight into your world very very quickly I've noticed having seen you uh was that the moment that you first experienced that where you felt like this whole room is kind of hanging on my every word and I'm making them super happy
2: yeah, it's, like, really simple, you know, in a lot of ways. Um, and you feel that connection. And then, you know, I had other connections, other moments, like when Noise Addict supported Sonic Youth and no one knew we were going to be playing and we came out, these little kids, and I could see the audience. Everyone thought Sonic Youth were coming on and Thurston came out and got on his knees because the mic was so low and introduced us. And he was like, this is the real Sonic Youth. And the audience were perplexed. Fantastic, And... I think that moment of the audience looking, going, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> that moment also it, it planted in me the seed of how fun it is to defy people's expectations. Mm.
0: That would have been a blast. Tell, tell us, just give us a little anecdote about going all the way back, you know, backstage and being sort of so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed about that whole experience. What what was happening?
2: Yeah, well, it was just like you know, we didn't do a sound check. We just plugged into their gear. Um, and it was so loud it was like the loudest amps we'd ever been plugged into we'd never really been on a stage and we're at selena's or the cuji bay hotel like a thousand people or whatever and it was just absolute madness yeah and i loved it the
0: beastie boys thing is i mean i love the fact that during lockdown you've been posting some great throwback pictures of your career and your life and
2: tell us a bit about
0: i know you've spoken about many many times but you know, hooking up with the Beastie Boys and kind of getting really super in with them as a friend, not just you know as an artist they w- they're working with, and and that incredible relationship.
2: Yeah, well, one of the things that um, happened for me was um, this wider community of sort of challenging thinkers sort of just scooped me up and said, "You're one of us," mm. and that happens to young people in different ways. You know, sometimes young people get they're like they meet on the basketball court and someone's like, Hey, you can hang with us. You can, you know what I mean? Or or even just like socially, like the way someone dresses or the way someone talks or like there are moments when you get drawn into tribes of like-minded people. And, and from a very young age, this certain type of person recognized that I was, we were like cohorts, you know? Um, So yeah, in the beginning it was like kind of mind blowing And then you realize, though, that like if you take the glamour out of it, you're talking about a community of people that are interested in what can you do with music and culture? Mm. Like, what can we do with it to mess with it and to mess with culture and to change it and to challenge it and have fun with it? And really, that's all it is. Um, And people that really live with that, they know each other and they get to know each other and they help each other.
0: So what you did is you wore a Beastie Boys T-shirt to their concert. Is that how it all? (laughs) <laughs> yeah exactly uh, probably, are yeah. you still in contact with those guys obviously only two of them rest in peace yeah like
2: mike was always more uh he was the one who ran the label so he was the one i you know and then you know i only used to be married to adam horowitz um so you know we stay in touch through that and and Yalk was you know because he was very interested in spirituality so we had a lot of great nights like talking about buddhism and Rock and roll and partying, and you know, so they're, they're all they were actually all very different relationships, and same with like Money Mark and Mario, and all the people around them were also very dynamic, interesting people who I really looked up to.
1: Without perhaps understanding it at the time, especially at that age, I can only assume that that sort of acceptance by not just that community, but really any community, especially of older musicians, would then. Sort of empower you to do the same it seems like that's kind of how your career's gone since then in terms of roping in all sorts of collaborators experimenting with as you say kind of like what music can do as as this sort of like tool as opposed to just someone who puts out songs and then tours it and that sort of thing does that uh do you think that would yeah, would have yeah. always played out that way or was it kind of what the universe kind of how the universe accepted you at that point, And so you were, all right, well, I guess this is how it works. So I'm going to set off on this path.
2: No, I mean, undoubtedly what I learned from Sonic Youth and the Beastie Boys was pay it forward, mm, mm. Um, foster creative community. Um, I've always thought that, like, whatever, whenever you gain a little momentum, you try and bring as many people with you. You try and share the mm. wealth, you know. So I've always just wanted to, like, connect with younger artists and then selfishly I just get like a good vibe like I get energy and like juice to like continue with my own career through connecting with younger people um and then there's also something I think that's happened with culture where I was a little bit between I was the generation like between alternative culture and um sort of the streaming Spotify generation Mm. You know, but because I was embraced by the older generation, people often associate me with that kind of like the 90s artist. Whereas in reality, like I would more like closer to the age of the strokes, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? So there is something that I think I have in common with in even younger, like when I when I meet people like Shamir and Georgia Mac mm-hmm. and, you know, different younger artists who I just feel like man, I I get your wavelength, but I've also always aspired to be the kind of artist that as I grew older would stay connected to young people, the way young people think. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's sort of a mix of all those things. Like I I just find it really, it's important. It's important to me to stay up with like what's happening, I guess, you know?
1: I guess also it, uh, it showed you a world outside Australia. Like famously you, you know, you had great success in Australia and then moved to America in, I want to say, the late 90s. Is that too too early?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, the, it was a bit, you know, it was kind of like I moved actually in 96, right after I finished high school, but my records didn't do well in Australia until Breathing Tornadoes, which was, I think, 98 or 99. So it was one of the ironies of, like, I sort of made this kind of blue-collar decision to go where the work was and often that happens like when you leave sort of like (laughs) back home goes a bit like hey we like you you know (laughs) so so my career started building in australia after i left sort of by accident
1: you you did a great podcast with max quinn in quarantine when you returned to australia in late december and one of the things one of the quips you had in it was that you were disappointed in the lack of drama in the Oz music industry so moved to america to in some in some (laughs) ways chase it
2: yeah a little bit a little bit And I still feel a little bit like there is a sort of like um, there is a type of insanity in America and in American artists that I relate to. Mm. It's like a type of madness. uh, And it's not necessarily good for the country or the people, but it is there.
1: They especially in creative pursuits, there's a mad insanity, but it's positive, isn't it? Like everyone you meet, they're like, oh, my God, that's the best idea I've ever heard. You should do that which
2: yeah 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 very very jazzed up (laughs) while
1: you have to take it at face value it is also very encouraging whereas australians tend to be the opposite so yeah you know i don't know if i write that
2: and it also means you put bets on things you know like if you really believe in something even if you're wrong whether it's a piece of work you've made or a band you've seen you're like that's the best band like you place a bigger bet because you're feeling more enthusiastic Mm. So if you have a more muted enthusiasm, you find people taking less risks in honour of the thing that they are, you know, cheerleading.
1: But now, of course, you've returned to Australia to escape the drama of uh, America over the last couple of years. Does Does that feel like in this current day? I mean, as we talk, cases are rising in Sydney with COVID, whereas a lot of America, even though it's still having a lot of issues is, is opening up in a different way. Does it feel like the right move right now?
2: Yeah. I mean, look right now, I think we're just watching what's happening. And like I said, I'm getting everything ready for my album release. Um, but yeah, I do think the bubble, you know, we had this six months we got here where I was like, Oh my God, we're in paradise. It's all Australia figured it out, everything. And, and then Delta variant came along and the whole mode of controlling it stopped working. But, you know, life is fluid and it changes. And I don't think that I I don't really want to live in a world where things remain the same all the Mm. time. Um, So, I, yeah, that's where it is now. And then we just keep you just have to continue to pivot and dance and move with life actually happening.
0: Tell me, tell us about your relationship with the song We're All In This Together, considering that Gidinski, rest in peace, you know, chose it for music from the home front as a a real thing, you know, to to bring us all together. And that certainly worked for a fair amount of time and debatable whether it's still working now because of the way um, the states are sort of squabbling. Unfortunately, I think as a whole, uh, Australians, everyone's hurting for Sydney right now and hurting for New South Wales. Tell us about the, yeah, the, your relationship, how that's changed over time, because um, Paul Kelly said a great quote, which is, um, every song is a cover, well, whenever you perform a song, it's it's the cover of the original, even if it's your own song.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, that song, you know, was like track 11, I think, or something like that <laughs> on <laughs> Wake Is The New Sleep. So that was never meant to be like a single type song or anything. It was meant to be like a live one, like for the audience, and, you know, I liked the song. Um it's weird because it does. It, its meaning seems to change. At the moment, there's almost like a an, an irony laced through it. Totally. <laughs> um, I didn't want to say it. but In terms of the wanted... way I see it. Yeah, the way it's being used. And, so, and that's okay, too, because I also have like a dark sense of humor. Um, but um, I guess the main thing I took from that whole thing was to never think you can predict the story of a song and what's going to happen with a song. Because you know, I have another song. This song, "Hard Drive," that is a song that Evan Dando put on his record. I, I've never really—I I think I did it as a B-side, but it's a—it's a song I, I gave to him. And you know, Phoebe Bridges ended up covering that, covering wow. that, and Bruce Springsteen put it on like an intro thing for one of his stadium tours. It was <laughs> and like that was like a throwaway song. Um, and I've had enough of those experiences just to remind me that you never really know what work a, a song is going to do in the world and it's sort of not yours to decide
0: of the new record band which are the songs you can kind of give us a little taste of or a little bit of a uh, a title perhaps that you have a sneaking suspicion might do
2: well yeah yeah well the album's called I'm fun so and uh, um very good <laughs> the, the 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 single that's coming out the single coming out at the end of august is called born for this bullshit um <laughs> Which is also like, it's in a way, it's like a, um, it's a song of perseverance too. You know, it's a song about being in this world that's so insane and continuing to sort of keep a little swagger and a little positive attitude in it. And then there's a song called parents get high. Um, that's like a family song about, (laughs) um, about kids, kids looking at their parents through the lockdown kind of, and like coming to some new understandings of them.
0: Very good. Um. The yeah, the I'm fun thing sort of taps into Trip- tropical fuckstorm released a song called F, which is give a fuck fatigue. There's something sort of zeitgeisty about sort of looking at where we're all at, you know, <laughs> trying to keep a bit of a, a spring in the yep. in the step as well. Well, a
1: good a good a good a good thing for the I'm fun t-shirt could be that you can just change it using different exclamation marks and question marks at the end of it, can't
2: you? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Hit different. Done.